Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast. I am not Ray Harris. My name is Tim Martin, and I am the creator of Valiant Stories of Heroes podcast, which, if you're interested in World War II or history in general, you should definitely check out. I'm filling in for Ray today because he lost his voice and could not record. Vacationing in Vegas will do that for you, Ray. Now, let's get on with episode 152, Operation Typhoon, Behind the Lines. General Heinz Guderian, commander of Panzer Group II, a.k.a. Fast Heinz, had dashed his way across western Soviet Russia and had enjoyed most of it. He had almost been captured a few times, such was his belief of being out in front and seeing the developing situation himself. And he enjoyed that too, once he knew it was safe. But now, in late October... As he was on the southern end of Operation Typhoon, he realized he had dashed far ahead of his supply chain. When we left Kadarian, he was attacking around Tula, located 193 kilometers, or 119 miles, due south of the capital, and though he was causing serious consternation in Moscow, his gains should have been more impressive. When he started yelling questions as to why they weren't more impressive, he started learning about his Panzer Group's lack of Well, everything. Ammunition was now so low that a further general offensive by his group might prove impossible. Some units were out of gas, and their tanks might have to be abandoned. Though Guderian had wanted to capture more territory around Tula before capturing the city itself and then turning the corner and heading north, the general German successes up and down the line were such that the Soviets were expected to pull back as they always had anyhow, which is where Guderian normally shined brightest, hitting an enemy as they retreated. But his lack of shells and gasoline prohibited this. And, as he and his men were about to find out, the Soviets were not going to fall back. Not this time. Yet a leader finds solutions, as opposed to saying, oh well, this is why we couldn't. So Guderian radioed the closest Luftwaffe unit, who promised to fly in some... 2,640 gallons, or 12 cubic meters, of gasoline. This fuel was reserved for the spearheads, but it would be enough to allow them to keep moving, to keep pressure on the supposed retreating Soviets, and to find what else could be captured in the defenders' absence. The fuel was flown in and put into the panzers. It would have been a complete waste to fill up the wheeled vehicles. They weren't going anywhere in the mud. Truth to tell, the tanks wouldn't fare much better, but at least they could advance, though slowly. Now topped off, 
Kampfgruppe Eberbach sent some of his panzers with fuel to other units while he moved out. Though the going was slow and fuel was wasted fighting the mud, Eberbach managed to advance 19 miles, or 30 kilometers, to the northwest and capture Kern. Then he seized two bridges at the nearby river. This left him just another 50 miles, or 80 kilometers shy of Tula, if this northwesterly advance could continue. This latest movement was small potatoes to what they had been accomplishing, but it was better than nothing. Sending some panzers to the southwest, back to the Oriole where additional fuel had been flown to, Guderian's advance continued, albeit slowly. With the main Soviet army moving away, the Germans to the south were limited to dealing with partisans, the mud, a lack of bridges, and receiving adequate supplies. Their situation became harder with every kilometer they made east. The panzers were coming ever closer to Tula, yet it was obvious to those units on the move that the roads between Kern and Tula were horrible. The invaders' wheeled vehicles would not be joining the fight until the mud froze. So engineers worked on the road, which soon deteriorated again due to heavy traffic. The roads were repaired again, but the trucks, when they came, would still find themselves stuck on the road to Tula, which pretty much ended, for now, any German hopes of taking the city. What are you supposed to do when the only proper road has three feet of mud on it? For now, there would be no advance beyond Tula, if they made it that far, until the roads could be worked on, more fuel and ammo brought up, and the mud solidified by the cold. Still the panzers moved on. As Guderian's lead units were just five kilometers from Tula, the panzer group leader met with the men from the Hirreswaffenamt. They dealt with the development of munitions and weapons of the army. They wanted to ask Guderian about his experiences in dealing with the heavier Soviet tanks. Specifically, as they were in the middle of a fight with Russia, for now, they wanted his ideas on how to improve the panzers currently in production, instead of designing and building a whole new line of tanks. Guderian understood this and recommended longer barrels along with stronger propellant charges and better ammunition, which altogether would improve the armor-piercing capabilities of his tanks' 5cm and 7.5cm guns. All that was for the offensive. As for repelling the Soviets, and at this point in the war, it was probable that some of the higher-ranking officers could picture a drawn-out war with Russia, Guderian wanted the anti-tank battalions to have 8.8cm and 10.5cm anti-aircraft guns. But not for Soviet aircraft, for their tanks. Quite simply, the 8.8 shells could not take out the heaviest Soviet tanks, leave those for the lighter models. The 10.5s were needed to keep Germany on the winning side against the T-34s. This last request would not be fulfilled, but the Panzer Division kept their anti-aircraft weapons close by all the same, and continued to use them against the Soviet tanks. All of this did not bode well for the invaders. Not having the right weapons leads to unnecessary deaths. Not having the right intelligence leads to defeat. On October 22nd, a report was sent out to the AG commanders that basically said, Russia was out of reserves. Not only was this not true, at this point Stalin had ordered the formation of ten more reserve armies, but he already had en route additional support soon to arrive from the Far East. But what's more, now the defense of Moscow would have even more tanks than they did on October 1st, and many of them would be the T-34s. 
Staying on topic with the Guderian's forces in the south, a direct attack was made on Tula, the key industrial hub for the region, on October 30th. But, because only two infantry battalions of roughly 800 men each, and two tank battalions, somewhere between 20 and 45 tanks each, could be put together, the attack was not strong enough to overcome the defenders. The reason for this was that Tula had not been abandoned. Stalin would not let it be so. Two more attacks were made on Tula at the end of October, but these resulted in men dying, who then disappeared in the mud. The city was still in Russian hands. Then, more Soviet troops arrived. Soon there were enough defenders to not only guard the city, but hinder Guderian should he try to swing wide of the city and continue on, leaving it for other forces coming forward as best they could through the mud. As it was, Guderian's forces had traveled the furthest east of all Operation Typhoon, but for now, would have to wait for the ground to harden. Every 7th of November, the Soviet Communist Party held a military parade in Red Square, commemorating the revolution that saw the Bolsheviks come to power. And Stalin had decided in October of 1941 that if it was possible, this would continue this year, despite the Germans' astounding penetrating into Soviet territory and their proximity to Moscow. It would be good for morale, and Stalin wanted to bring some much-needed good news to the people, even if he had to lie. Had someone other than Stalin been in charge, Zhukov or someone from the Stavka might have mentioned that the units to be used in the parade would serve better if they were out on the field. But Stalin was in charge, so everyone, wisely, complied with his orders. Zhukov informed his leader that the weather was still poor and that he could not see any major offensive by the enemy in the offing anytime soon. And he was more or less right, but not because of a lack of will on the Germans' part. Had the roads been any better, AGC would have loved to participate in the year's festivities. Maybe even, perhaps, hold their own parade. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Stalin grunted his acknowledgement and decided the parade would go on. But just to be safe, more anti-air units were brought in, just in case the Luftwaffe attempted to ruin things. The commander of the Moscow Military District, Lieutenant General Pavel Artemev, who had the responsibility of defending Moscow proper, and was quite busy at the moment, was given the honor of organizing the parade. Again, he did not point out the salient facts to Stalin, but merely saluted. On November 6th, the day before the parade, Stalin normally gave a speech to the Politburo. This year, taking into consideration the German proximity, his speech would be delivered at the Mayakovsky subway station on Gorky Street in central Moscow. The next day, November 7th, saw Soviet T-60s, three abreast, rolling through Red Square, followed then by the BT-7s. Behind these smaller, lighter tanks came the T-34s, Before their engines faded away, some 30 armored cars and over 300 other motor vehicles followed up. Then came some of the infantry of the 332nd Rifle Division, 
followed by students from differing military schools, naval cadets, and anti-aircraft units. The last across the square were men from the NKVD. They kept the people in line and the party in power, hence their position of honor. When Stalin spoke, he reminded his countrymen that Soviet Russia was not in this war alone. They had the aid of Great Britain and the U.S., but it was Soviet strength that had delivered 4.5 million German casualties while they had only lost some 1.7 million men in defense. Of course, these numbers were way off. It would be better to reverse them and bring them down a bit to be closer to the truth. But the average Soviet citizen listening on the radio did not have communications with most other parts of the country. Stalin also stressed that their country was fighting a just war. They had been attacked without provocation. All treaty requirements of Soviet Russia were being met up until the morning of the attack. Stalin's closing remarks were as follows. Let the victorious banner of the great Lenin fly over your heads. Utter destruction to the German invaders. Death to the German armies of occupation. Long live our glorious motherland, her freedom and her independence. Under the banner of Lenin, onward to victory. Whether this bolstered the people is not known, but once Stalin's speech was over, the obligatory ovation commenced, right on cue. Yet, the Soviet high command had been put on notice. If they believed Stalin's resolve had weakened in any way, well, now they knew better. And, of course, they were expected to toe the line. Soviet Russia, with all its imperfections, but having a population that dwarfed Nazi Germany's, would fight. It was simply a matter of life or death. Thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast. Again, my name is Tim Martin of the Valiant Stories of Heroes podcast. You can find it on iTunes by searching the full name. If you just search Valiant, you'll get a whole bunch of podcasts that aren't mine. Be sure to connect with me on Facebook as well. I've got lots of articles and extra content I'll be posting on there. And I'll be doing some contests and giveaways in the near future, so you don't want to miss out on that. And if you have any questions, concerns, or snide remarks, be sure to email me at valiantheroespodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's valiantheroespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, be sure to support Ray's endeavors as well. Go to his website and order like 100 CDs and mugs, give them as wedding gifts, or stand on the street corner and hand them out to strangers. Anyway, thanks for uh, putting up with my L speech impediment and my horrible pronunciation of German and Russian words. Uh, This is Tim Martin filling in for Ray Harris, signing off. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So this is Ray this time. Um, First of all, I want to thank Tim Martin for recording that. I really do appreciate it. I didn't want the listeners um, to have to wait another week or so before I get better, before this comes out. So uh, I was able to find, and I'm imagining you don't want to hear this for uh, for 20 minutes. Um, I was able to find some additional information on the opening phases of uh, Operation Typhoon. So I just wanted to um, share this, the audio version of it with you. And I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode, which will be much longer and much more detail because I'm getting back on my feet. Take care, everyone. There was also a series of elaborate defense lines up to 250 miles long. The first centered on Vyazma 
and the others on Mozhaisk. The first blow took the Soviets completely by surprise. Guderian's 2nd Panzer Army, returning from the Kiev battle, took Orel, a vital road junction 75 miles behind the first Russian defense line. Three days later, the Panzers pushed on Bryansk, another communication center, while 2nd Army attacked from the west. Three Russian armies were trapped. To the north, 3rd and 4th Panzer armies threw their pincers around Vyazma, trapping another five Soviet armies. Moscow's first line of defense had been shattered in the opening blows, and the door to Moscow had been burst open. It was Stalin's insistence on manning defensive lines to the very end that made the situation at Bryansk and Vyazma so catastrophic. The pockets yielded 663,000 Russian prisoners, bringing the tally since the start of the invasion to 3 million. Once again, the German high command allowed itself to believe that the war in the east was won. This time, they were certain their belief was justified. On the Russian side, only 90,000 men and a handful of tanks were left on the last defense line in front of Moscow. In desperation, Stalin summoned General Zhukov, who had been organizing the defense of Leningrad, and gave him the job of saving the capital. Weeks before, Zhukov had resigned as chief of the general staff after a disagreement with the dictator. But now, Stalin chose to forget their differences. By this time, the situation outside Moscow was critical. On October the 13th, 4th Infantry Army penetrated the last Soviet defense line at Kaluga. At the same time, to the north, 3rd Panzer penetrated to within 90 miles of the capital and looked set to break into the Soviet rear. For the Russians, Serious as the situation was on the flanks, in the center, there was mortal danger. There, 10th Panzer Division and the SS Das Reich Motorized Division had beaten off a furious counterattack at Borodino. They were now driving up the Smolensk to Moscow highway, advancing on Mozhaisk, the key to the central sector of the Moscow defense line and only 60 miles from the city. With the German armies on the threshold of the capital, there was panic in Moscow. Martial law was declared. Government departments and embassies were evacuated. And there was a frantic effort to build last-ditch defenses in and around the city. Although the citizens of Moscow expected little mercy from the Germans, in fact, none knew the savage reality of Hitler's plans for the Soviet capital. The German armies had been instructed not to accept its surrender. Its inhabitants might be allowed to flee, but the city was to be obliterated from the face of the earth. In its place was to be built a gigantic reservoir. 
And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.